We're going to be in 1 Timothy again, and we're in chapter 5, beginning with verse 17 through 25, and I'm going to have Jim Kelly come read to us. Verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. No longer drink wine uh, water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. Uh, For others, the sins follow after. Likewise, also, Deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. You may be seated. Well, the last time that we looked at this letter of 1 Timothy, we saw how Paul was encouraging his young co-worker, Timothy, Uh, in how to uh, approach the various Christians there at Ephesus. Kind of broke things up in in relationship to age and gender, but in general he was saying that he was not to treat anyone harshly, but rather as family members, spiritual family members. And we also saw how the church should honor the widows in in its midst so that all would be properly taken care of. Today, we want to look at the way the church should honor its elders, and then also how Timothy was exhorted to be very careful in how he delegates authority there at Ephesus. The word elder in verse 17 is kind of amazing. Is actually the same word used for older men in verse 1 of chapter 5, do not sharply rebuke an older man. So why is it translated a little different? Well, it's because of the context. We have to determine the meaning by the context. In verse 17, it is used in its official sense, not just as someone who is older, but one who, because of his spiritual maturity, is recognized by the church as having a position of an overseer, one who watches over or, as it says here, rules. 
the elders who rule well. So an overseer, an elder is one who rules, rules over the flock. This is a group of people that Paul gives the qualifications for back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So what does it mean to rule well? That should be a question that I as an elder should ask myself. And when I ask myself, it's kind of daunting to consider it. But it's a question for all of us here. What does it mean to rule well? Well, the word rule has a connotation of directing, leading, managing, caring for, guiding, and all of the, and probably much more than that, but at least those things. And all of that has to be done without lording it over the flock. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring that about, where you're, you're guiding, directing, leading without lording it over the flock. Pastors lead and rule through applying and, and presenting the Word of God to people by living the Word of God before the people, by being an example of those who serve. Jesus said it this way, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let, let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. Servant leadership is what this position is all about, of being an elder. To rule well would be to rule in the right way, in sound doctrine, in exercising the duties that you're called to as an elder, to being diligent, to being disciplined, that all would be involved in ruling well. Uh, it would be to lead and equip the saints, God's people, so that the kingdom of God could be advanced in the world. That would be to rule well. So, Paul here tells us that elders who rule well should have double honor. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what are we to understand by this double honor? Well, I think it probably has the idea of honor as an elder, honor because of the office that they're in, but also honor in terms of the work, the actual work that's being done. And if they rule well, they're worthy of double honor, not just because of the office that they're, the position they have, but the way they exercise that position. Um, if they've done an excellent job. And the scripture has a lot to say about how the uh, saints should view those that God has put in authority uh, in a congregation. Let's just look at a couple verses along that line. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13.
13.7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. But even more importantly, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. There's a way of honoring your elders, submitting and doing it in an attitude of, of uh, appreciation and love for those that uh, are seeking to guide you and watch over your souls. First um, Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 12, Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. He's talking about the pastors, the elders, the overseers. They diligently, there's that ruling well, diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another so esteeming them very highly that's that honor he's talking about esteeming them highly in love because of their work so that's part of what it's involved in honoring the the uh, elders but he goes on and adds to that he says that uh, this double honor would include i i believe the area of financial honor i think the idea would be that the elder is not only treated respectfully and submitted to but also maintained materially. Now, why would I say that? Well, I say that because of what follows in this section. He gives two examples here back in 1 Timothy. Two examples immediately after he talks about honoring those who rule well. Verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The one is from the Old Testament, not muzzling the ox. Um, I just explained that to the children. Back in the biblical times, uh, they didn't make bread in factories, uh, and they didn't prepare the grain in some factory. It was done to get the grain ready to be used like to make bread from, they had an oxen that would walk around over the grain and stomp on it or else pull something behind the oxen that would crush the grain and separate the good part of the grain from the husk. And the oxen would do that all day long, walking around, walking around. Well, the poor oxen, if he's muzzled, something over his mouth, he can't eat any of what he's working on. So the Bible back in the Old Testament said, don't muzzle the oxen. Let them, you know, get some of the 
the produce of what they're producing for other people. Let them have some of the grain. And Paul takes that, uh, something that was written for the oxen, and applies it in a broader sense here in the New Testament as applying to those who prepare something for you spiritually, they should be taken care of materially. So he sa- and he says it's just a basic principle there. I think the principle is that every worker, whether oxen or manual labor or minister, has a right to partake of the fruit of their work. And then Paul quotes Christ himself, where he says the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's an exact quote from Jesus. So Paul's saying in the Old Testament and now as the New Testament age is beginning and dawning upon us, we see this principle that the person who ministers to you should be taken care of. Um, Why don't we look at another scripture on this? If we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning with verse 9, and he's talking about uh, those who preach the gospel and uh, seek to minister to others and uh, positions of leadership. For it is written, again, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the oxen while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for your sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Um, Let's just skip on down. He says it very clearly in verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He's referring back to this scripture where the Lord says the laborer is worthy of his hire. So it's very clear, I think, that when, when Paul's instructing Timothy here relation, in relationship to the eldership, he's saying that one of the ways that you honor those who are seeking to feed you spiritually is to help them materially. The main point in all this is that ample provision should be made for those who serve the church so that as far as possible they can use their time to minister spiritually to God's people. See, if the person that's in that position has to spend a lot of their time trying to just take care, earn a living to take care of their family. Uh, They're not going to be able to spend the time that may be necessary in order to really feed the flock the way they should. So, talking about honoring the elders. Paul then goes on to show another way that the church should honor its elders, and that's in verse 19. (laughs) 
do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. God's people should guard the reputation of their elders, their leaders, and keep them from unnecessary burdens and interruptions from slanders and fault finders. It's a wonderful thing if a congregation will do that for its pastors because there's going to be plenty of slander, plenty plenty of fault finders. And again, Paul is applying an Old Testament principle to a New Testament situation. In the Old Testament, there were there had to be two or three reliable witnesses before a person could be condemned for a crime. You find that back in Deuteronomy 19:15. We won't look that up right now, but it's just a basic principle that there had to be, you know, substantial evidence for someone to be convicted of something. It's just a basic understanding of the way uh, justice is is done. Well, Paul takes that principle and applies it in this situation. In the case of elders, Paul is telling Timothy to make sure that there are valid, substantiated concerns about an elder before you openly question their integrity. Paul realized from his own experience that a godly minister is going to have those who dislike him and want to discredit him, especially in situations where there are false teachers trying to slander God's ministers and disrupt God's work. And that was the situation here at Ephesus, you remember. Paul starts right out in this letter talking about, uh, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain in Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. There There was heresy being presented, strange doctrines. Teachers were having influence here that should not be And uh, the more concerned a leader is with dealing with false teachers and slanderers and those who spread myths and foolish speculations like was going on at Ephesus, the more concerned that a a good pastor is about that type of thing, it actually will bring out more slander and accusations from the people that he's pointing out. The more he will be exposed to false accusations and evil suspicions. So Paul is cautioning Timothy not to entertain every accusation against an elder unless adequate witnesses come forth. False teachers have to be weeded out, but be careful as you're doing that not to go on scanty evidence and end up weeding out the good men too. And I can just say from reading enough church history to realize that uh, many, many godly men have had false charges and reckless rumors circulated about them. It was true in the case of Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers, Spurgeon. You could go on and on, and I'm sure it's true of hundreds thousands, hundreds of thousands probably, of lesser-known Christian leaders. They have had false reports circulated against them. So this should caution us all 
And may God help us not to spread stories which, are, which we're uncertain about. To put it bluntly, it is sin to spread stories, the truth of which we're not sure. Repeating unsubstantiated hearsay is something God is very displeased with. I might say just a word for those who are in leadership or will be someday, and it's a basic principle here, but you can't spend all your time trying to deal with these accusations. One person said, just let liars lie. Don't spend your precious time chasing the devil's rabbits, was another way a man put it. Keep to the work that God has called you. Satan can stir up lies quicker than you can answer them. If you spend all your time trying to deal with all the false accusations, you're not going to be feeding the, feeding the flock. I mean, we, we must certainly seek to live above reproach. And when reproaches come, we need to be sure that we're clean in those areas. Check, I mean, consider what's being said. Is there some truth to what's being said? But most of all, when you know that your heart's right with God, just press on. Proceed with the work that God's called you to. Remember that Jesus himself said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. And he just said that's the common lot of being in a position of leadership. It's going to be that way. That's the way it was with the prophets who were before you. So that's one aspect of what uh, Paul wants Timothy to uh, understand there in the situation at Ephesus. But there is another side to it, and that's in verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may also be fearful of sinning. There are situations where those in leadership have actually sinned, and there is sufficient support and evidence to show that this is the case. In such a situation, if repentance is not forthcoming... The person and that person continues in sin, it may be necessary for public rebuke to take place. Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit hard to tell for sure from the context if he means rebuke in the presence of the other elders or in the presence of the whole congregation, but I tend towards the latter. I think he's saying if... if a, person who's taking a position of authority in the church is in obvious sin doctrinally or in lifestyle and is not repentant it needs to be brought to the church needs to, there needs to be public rebuke Paul tells us why this is necessary first it may bring the elder in question to consider even more seriously the the seriousness of his persistence in sin. Second, it should cause others to to be careful not to sin. It should produce a godly fear 
of wrongdoing among both the elders and the church in general. And then lastly, it has an effect, a good effect upon those outside the church because the church must never give the impression to the world that it condones sin in its midst. And that happens. It's, it happens a lot in our day. There's obvious sin taking place in a church. It might be, uh, in this case, we're talking about the leadership, and nothing's done about it. And the world sees that and says, what is real about Christianity? So it needs to be dealt with. There needs to be church discipline. And sometimes that's just not done. It's too touchy. It's too uh, difficult, supposedly, and it doesn't get taken care of. And sinful, unchristlike attitudes and actions are simply brushed aside and ungodly ministers go right on in their position. When proper church discipline is lacking, God's people are actually disheartened and Christianity is discredited before the eyes of the world. I think one of the main causes of the present deplorable condition of American Christianity is the neglect of church discipline both among the leadership and the congregation in general. When we do not deal with significant sin in the church, in the leadership, or in general, we destroy the ability of the church to honor God and save the lost. Evil teaching and evil actions must be exposed and dealt with, or the church itself becomes a tool of Satan. Think about that. The church itself, the professing church, becomes a tool of Satan and not a testimony of Christ. There's no testimony of the power of Christ to save if, if significant sin is not dealt with and exposed in the church. Well, I guess at this point I'd just like to say a word or a few thoughts here concerning how we apply these scriptures today. What we're looking at here are guidelines that Timothy, under Paul's instruction, were to implement at Ephesus. Paul, of course, did not try to cover every particular situation that could arise. That would take volumes. But Timothy could use these instructions to guide him in other areas basic things that Paul was teaching him here. It's also good to remember that these were instructions for one working under the direct apostolic authority of Paul. We're not really in that situation today. Today we have to try to adopt these guidelines in our present situations under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. For instance, it takes godly wisdom and guidance from heaven to know at what times to keep things quiet about sins in people's lives and when there needs to be public rebuke. It's just not an automatic thing. It takes some real discernment on those things. What about situations where an individual feels like there's something wrong in an elder's life? 
Should that person try to figure out if other people have witnessed the same thing? In other words, go around and start talking with others about, have you seen this with the elders? That, that sounds like a snare to me. Sounds like a good way uh, for something to evolve into gossip and evil superstitions. Should that person go to the elder involved or another elder with their concern? I think that is one way of honoring the elders. You go to them if you see something, humbly, in love. And whether you go to that particular elder or some of the other elders, that depends partly on the particular situation and the nature of the problem. But you honor the elders by not talking behind their backs about concerns you might have about them. It's part of honoring those in leadership. Well, there are many other questions along these lines which must be considered always. What we're talking about here this morning has to be considered in the context of the love of Christ, the Word of God, and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Only in that context will, will we be able to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These things can be so divisive, so destructive to a church. But if they're dealt with, again, in the context of the love of Christ and the Word of God under the direction of the Holy Spirit, then they can be dealt with properly. Well, after Paul lays down these principles, he gives a strong and solemn admonition to Timothy in verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. It doesn't matter who you're dealing with, you do not want to have a spirit of partiality, whether it's a leader or anyone else. Never deal with it in a spirit of partiality or bias. These principles have to be applied in a fair, just, and impartial manner and realize that you, you're working under the eye of God as you apply these things. You're going to have to give an account to him for how you apply these things. And Paul did this with Timothy a number of times uh, in chapter 6, verse 13. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's emphasizing you're doing this under the eye of God if you turn over to Second Timothy, chapter 4, I solemnly charge you, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But again, just pointing out to Timothy, 
that he is working always under God, under the eye of God. We've said that Timothy probably was not as forceful or dynamic a personality as Paul. So I think Paul may have felt that his young co-worker would profit from these strong reminders of the seriousness of his calling. The privilege and yet the seriousness of what God had called him to. Remember who you're serving, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's true for all of us. We all need to be reminded that we have a charge to keep. This isn't just for pastors. As the song says, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify. As we go through life from day to day, we all need to be reminded at work or wherever we are that we are functioning under the eye of God. And we will give an account of our activity before the God of all the earth. Our actions, like Timothy's, are being watched over by God, by Christ, and by the elect angels. And ultimately, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not just the pastors, all of us. These elect angels, I think, are the holy angels that did not follow Satan in his rebellion. They're unfallen angels, which in some way, which we don't understand, surround us right now all the time. And we'll be there will be present on the day of judgment. So he's just trying to emphasize this, the solemnity of the fact of what we're doing as Christians. Well, in light of this solemn charge, Paul points out the need, again, for justice and impartiality in Timothy's dealings with others. There should be no prejudice, no prejudging, no attitudes of personal favoritism. God is always just and always impartial. And that's the way he wants us to be also. Let me just read one verse. You don't need to turn to it, but it's interesting. Back in Second Chronicles 19.7, there was some judges being appointed, and it says this concerning those. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. That's really what we're talking about. Living under the eye of God is living in the fear of God. Proper reverence for who we're serving. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking of a bribe. You try to administer... God's or try to serve God with a spirit of partiality said I'm not going to have any part of that God just said that he's not going to have any part of that type of thing we're told in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 there's no partiality with God no one's above God's law no leader no position high or low We all are accountable for the way we live before God. Well, verse 22 then. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share the responsibility for the sins of others. 
keep yourself free from sin. So we have the subject of laying on of hands. Again, we're talking about an action that is mentioned in the Old Testament and carried over into the New Testament. Some of the occasions where we see the laying on of hands mentioned in the New Testament have to do with the bestowing of divine blessing or the imparting of the Holy Spirit or the appointment of church office to a church office or the setting aside of a person for a special work. And then it is also sometimes associated with the healing of the sick. But obviously, I believe, because of the context, we're dealing here primarily with the ordination of elders. He's saying not laying hands on anyone uh, hastily. This was something that was to be done carefully, cautiously, with an unbiased, impartial attitude. The qualifications that Paul had outlined in chapter 3 must be carefully considered and weighed in an impartial manner. In fact, if Timothy ordains someone without sufficient investigation and that person turns out to be morally unfit for the office, Paul says that Timothy would be partly responsible for the harm done by that wrongful appointment. One writer put it this way, undue haste in Christian appointments has not infrequently led to unworthy men bringing havoc to the cause of Christ. So, Again, Paul's saying, be careful here. Be careful, be cautious. It seems there are four areas of harm that may be done by rash or indiscriminate ordination of pastors. First, there's harm done to the one ordained. He should not have been put in a position he was unqualified for. Second, there's harm done to the church. God's people suffer under improper leadership. Third, harm done to the cause of Christ in the world. When one is raised to a position of prominence and that person falls into sin, it brings more dishonor to Christ because of that person's prominent position. It just, it's just that way. If a person's in a, in a position of authority and falls, it, br- it brings more notoriety in the wrong sense than if it was just uh, uh, someone not in that position of authority. And lastly, it harms the people who were were responsible for putting him in this position too quickly without proper examination. They share some responsibility in whatever sins were committed. So to put it in a nutshell, I think what Paul's saying is haste can make waste if we're not careful in regard to who we put in positions of authority in the church. He who appoints an unfit person to an office without due diligence in examination becomes in some sense responsible for that person's sin. And, you know, Paul, again, was dealing in a situation here where there are most likely already people in authority that should not have been there. Remember, Paul talked about that clear back in Acts chapter uh, 20. He said, after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in. Amongst yourselves, he said. So there was a, a bad situation that had to be dealt with here, and Paul was outlining some ways, uh, some important principles to go by as Timothy was trying to deal with that. Well, for the sake 
of clarity, I'd like to skip verse 23 and go on to verses 24 and 25. This is because I believe verse 23 is kind of a personal parenthetical note to Timothy related to some of his health problems. The actual flow of thought goes from verse 22 to verse 24 where Paul expands on the subject of why caution is necessary for the recognition of elders. He puts it in general terms, but I think he's this, that thought's still in his mind, emphasizing to Timothy, again, the importance of caution. Basically, Paul is saying in these last two verses, we're looking at 24 and 25, let me just read them to us. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So what Paul is saying here is that there's four types of people. First, there are people who are not above reproach, whose character flaws are evident. Their faults are obvious, and they're more or less known to everybody. The sins of some men are quite evident. They are clearly unfit for a position of authority in the church. But it's not always like that. Second, there are others whose sins are not immediately evident. Their sins do not go go before them. We might say it follows after them. It's kind of hidden behind. Not up front. It's behind and you're going to have to search and examine very carefully in order not to make a mistake. So that's the second group of people. And when he talks about judgment here, he says, uh, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them in judgment. Uh, I'm not sure if that judgment that he's talking about has to do with Timothy's judgment and the judgment of the church or God's ultimate ultimate judgment. In other words, he may be telling Timothy that if you investigate things thoroughly, thoroughly, you'll be able to make the right judgment about that person. The problem with that position is, is that often, at least in my own experience, you just can't say for sure where a person stands. You don't, you don't know their heart and in that sense it will take the final judgment of God to show what's really the case in some situations and that's I, that's the position I think that I think that's the emphasis of what Paul's saying here when it says uh, their sins are evident going before them to judgment others their sins will follow after uh, it will take the final judgment of God to show what's really the case in some situations. Um, one verse that I think of often when I'm uncertain about something or someone is just the little phrase where in 1 Corinthians 3.13 it says, The day shall declare it. I just fall back on that quite often. The day shall declare it. I don't know. But the day shall declare it. Well, there's a third group of people that Paul speaks of, and that's those whose good deeds are clearly evident. 
see that in the first part of 25. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident. Uh, Jesus said a good tree can be known by its good fruit. Men who are spiritually fit for the office are usually, office of uh, overseer, elder, are usually readily recognized by God's people. The people just recognize the gifts and calling of God upon a person like that. Their gifts and their godly character are evident. And then there's this last group, those whose good deeds are not so conspicuous. But if you look below the surface, you may find a worthy person fit for the office of, of oversight of the church. There, th that type of person may not be as obvious or dynamic, but eventually their godly qualities can't be concealed. You get to know them, you see this person is, is sterling in their character. And I wouldn't mind submitting to their, their understanding of the word and, and uh, their thoughts concerning uh, how, the, how uh, the church should function. So that, that would be the fourth group. They're not as obvious or dynamic, but eventually their godly qualities can't be concealed. So you might say it this way. Verse 24 is a warning against accepting someone too hastily. And verse 25 is a warning against passing over someone too hastily. And again, this is stated as kind of a general principle, but I think the, the reason he brings this up is, is this thing that he was specifically dealing with at the time, which had to do with uh, ordaining elders and not laying hands on anyone too, too quickly and putting them in a position of authority. But even, even as a general principle, it's something there for all of us, again, to consider, not just in relationship to the ordination of elders, but in everyday life. First impressions may be wrong, so we should not prejudge people we should not be hasty in our assessment of others. Sometimes we need to look, oftentimes we need to look deeper than what meets the eye to really see what a per, whether a person's life is good or bad. So don't settle on an opinion about someone without sufficient interaction and involvement and investigation. We are all called on to make righteous judgments all the time. It's just part of a life. We do need to make righteous judgments, but we also need to realize that ultimately only God knows the heart and the complete story of anyone. I like this verse in 1 Corinthians, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then... Each man's praise will come to him from God. It's just another way of saying the day shall declare it. Well, I don't think I'm going to try to go back to verse 23 now. We'll say that to next time, this subject of Timothy using a little wine for his stomach's sake. Uh, there's actually quite a lot you can glean from that verse, but we've already... I'll uh, spend enough time here in this section, so we'll leave that till next time.